Good evening again, ladies. My name is Kathy, and we are really excited that you are here with us for Women in the Word tonight. We are going to be here this summer studying different women in the Old Testament and learning a little bit about their stories. I don't know about you, if you like to watch stories, um, read stories, um, write them, watch them on TV, movies, there's a variety of different ways that we get to read and listen to different stories, and I don't know about you, and probably half the room will agree with me and half the room will be repulsed, but my sister and I have a happy TV rule, and that is if it's not happy or going to end happy, we don't want to watch it. <laughs> now, I know some of you are with me, and some of you are more maybe, um, I don't know, better than I am, and you think, well, what about the characters or the themes, or you would love this story, it's a tragedy, and that's totally fine, you enjoy it. But I will say, even to those of you who aren't happy TV people, that even you really would like your own story to end well, right? You don't want your life to end in a tragedy, right? So how can we make sure that our stories end well? Tonight, we are going to learn that from the widow of Zarephath. So we are going to start in 1 Kings chapter 17, and we are going to get to know this woman and a little bit about her story and specifically how her story ends and how we can learn from it. I'm going to start reading in, verses, in verse 8. The scriptures tell us, Then the word of the Lord came to him, that him is Elijah. He is a prophet. We read of him in the New Testament. He's actually just come onto the scene. So we are new into his life and ministry. And God speaks to him and says, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. I'd like to talk just a little bit about this widow when we get to meet her. To be honest, things don't look good. She is in a very hard place in life. Circumstances have hit really hard on her. If we kind of break it down a little bit, we see that socially it is challenging for her in the society in which she lives. She's a woman, which we, of course, think is great, but in that time, the privileges and opportunities for women weren't um, as good as we would like them to be, so it was difficult because of her gender. She also was a widow, probably relatively recently. That would have also made her social connections in society more difficult, plus the grief that went along with that. Also, she lived in a time where spiritually there were many, many people who were lost and they were confused. And I'd like to tell you just a minute about what was going on spiritually and a little bit politically in the area where she lived. In the Old Testament, we read the story of God and how he chooses a group of people to be his people, to love and to care for with the desire that they would reflect him and that they would be a blessing to the whole world. At times they did okay with that, at times they did not so well. They are in a not so well season. Um, even just prior to where we're reading now, the nation of Israel had been one nation and they had broken into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was still called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah. At this time, Ahab was king in Israel in this northern part. You may have gotten to read at your table the description of him just before chapter 17. It's a pretty scary phrase. It says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So even this king of what is supposed to be God's people to know him and love him and be a blessing to the world is doing evil. 
Now, what had also happened is the area just to the north of Israel where Elijah was, they, um, Israel and this area to the north had decided, hey, let's join together politically. So Ahab from Israel had married Jezebel, who was from the north, to make this political alliance. They thought we'll be strong enough against the nations around us. This will benefit us economically. However, if we thought Ahab was bad, Jezebel is really bad. She's not a nice lady. She's brought a lot of evil with her. Specifically, Baal worship. The idol of Baal was something that she brought with her. Um, Baal was allegedly, um, by their legend, a storm god who was in charge of rain and fertility and life. And so we have um, a very difficult scenario spiritually going on. Um, There were different choices, different religions, different ways they were mixing it together none of which at this point were particularly what they should have been. So she is not only socially in a challenging place, she is spiritually in a challenging place. On top of that, there's a famine and a drought going on, and she and her son are days away from physically dying. I'm imagining that if you were starving, you probably would have rationed your food to try to make it last as long as you can, My guess is that she was probably somewhat hungry, not feeling very well. So she's not feeling particularly well, and she believes, and realistically so, that she and her son are very soon going to die. Can you imagine being in that situation and being anything but incredibly emotionally distraught? She is indeed helpless, she is hopeless, and she is desperate. I don't know about you, but I was remembering just a couple of times in my life when I was in or close to a situation where I didn't know if I or someone I knew well was going to live or die. When my nephew was four and a half, my brother called, and though we have no genetic predisposition on either side, he was having seizures. They couldn't make him stop. My brother had called me from the car. My sister-in-law called me from the ambulance. We didn't know what was going on, how bad it was going to be. I flew immediately to South Carolina where they live, got there very late at night. And the children's hospital, especially the ICU, closes at a certain time of night. And so we decided I would sleep at my brother's house, get up the next morning, and go to the hospital. Well, about 3 a.m., my brother calls me and says, we don't know what's going on. We can't calm him down. Will you just come? So at 3 a.m., I drive to the children's hospital, not really knowing how I'm going to get in the building. (laughs) The doors are locked. I'm going to ICU, where my brother and sister-in-law and my nephew are. And I arrive at the hospital to a very, very difficult situation, as you can imagine. I also have had a couple of kinds of cancer and have memories, all unpleasant ones, of being in the chemo room, having um, poison put into you, um, not knowing if it's going to work the immense pain that for me came along with that, not knowing if you were going to live or die on top of that. Um, I did live, my nephew did live, and is able um, to live a great life, controlled my medication. But thinking about the widow of Zarephath and putting myself back in that place, and maybe you, as you have reflected on when you've been in that place, you get that taste of how desperate and how hopeless it must have been. For me, the only hope I had in the middle of that situation was my faith in Jesus, and she didn't know the true Yahweh God. She was living in an era at this beginning of her spiritual journey where we meet her, 
where there are many gods, many choices, and it was very difficult for her. However, something pretty unique happens, and let's read, God shows up in her world and provides an incredibly unique opportunity. Read with me starting in verse 10. So he, Elijah, arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of food in your hand. And she said, as the Lord lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So God provides the widow a unique opportunity. Um, Just so you know how unique this opportunity really was, pull out your verse sheet and look with me at verse 4. Jesus actually references this instance years later when he's talking about prophets and how they're not received well in their hometowns. It says, he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel during the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the widows in this area where he's from, but instead, God sends them only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. This is an incredibly unique opportunity for her. But if we're honest and step back, it also, on the surface, looks pretty absurd. Like, we're in a famine and a drought, and you're telling me that, like, my food isn't going to run out? Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. And step back even more and imagine what it is that Elijah asks of her. It's a famine and a drought. She's getting ready to die. Her son is getting ready to die. And this man she doesn't know, who's passed a whole bunch of other people and widows, shows up to her and says, hey, before you and your son eat, would you mind sharing uh, some, some food and some water with me? Now, I tried to imagine myself in the chemo room if someone had come in and said, there's this man, he's kind of come from a distance. We don't have enough medicine for longer than a week, but we're wondering if before you have some, you would kindly share with this other man. I'm kind of 50-50 on how that would go. I don't know. (laughs) I don't. But I have to tell you, if you'd asked me that question at 4 a.m. in a children's hospital with my nephew right there and said, can this grown man who's driven from states away past other hospitals first have as much medicine as he needs to make it? There's no way I'm saying. There's no way I'm saying yes unless God makes yes come out of my mouth when I was trying to say no. It's just not going to happen. Now, to be honest, this is her encounter with God, with the true God. What must she have been thinking? I mean, if I'm her and I'm just looking at it, I'm thinking, this is perplexing. Like, this God, like, this is perplexing, right? 
And, and you may be new to learning about God and about the Bible, and maybe you've just started to hear or read, and you're reading some things, and you're thinking, that's perplexing. I've never really heard that before. That's not the way I was raised. That's not how I hear people talking. You may get to a part in the Bible, and you're thinking about your family and how they've been mean to you, and your family's just saying, everyone's saying, just blow off your family. Just blow them off, they're just mean. And you read in the Bible where God says to forgive and be kind. That's perplexing if that's new to you. You think about how maybe in the office, everyone totally lies to the clients about when they're going to get that information to them, but then they're locked into the contract, they're not going to go to anyone else, and everyone just lies, and it's just how business is done. And you read in the Bible about telling the truth and integrity, and it doesn't really sound like other things you're hearing. Or you read in the Bible how God created sex and it's great and it's for a man and a woman who are married to each other. And you're thinking, but like what if you're engaged or like in love? Like really just just married? And to be honest, even if you've walked with Jesus a while, sometimes you open up your Bible and go, now that's perplexing to me. It, It is. Look at Isaiah 55 with me. The Bible even agrees that it's going to be somewhat different and perplexing to us. God talks about how his thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. To be honest, I don't want to get a bad rap or give a bad impression. I actually think it's a good thing that God's thoughts are different than mine. (laughs) Seriously, if I was the most knowledgeable person in the world that we were all dependent upon for the answers to everything in the world being held together you and I would be in real trouble. If we were always dependent upon the goodness of my character as to what happened in the world, to be honest, I'm selfish sometimes. It would not go well for any of us. I think this is a very good thing, but we have to admit as you encounter God for the first time and even along your journey, there's times that he is different and perplexing to us. So what does she do in this scenario? This unique, in my opinion, on the surface, absurd opportunity. How does she respond? Let's read verses 15 and 16. And she went and said to Elijah, oh, 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 and she went and did, sorry, as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. She does it. She makes this kind, beautiful choice, and she does it. And what happens? She lives. She gets physical life from this kind, beautiful choice she makes. Not just for herself, but her son lives, her household lives, Elijah lives. Like, look at the influence that this one simple choice made. And not just physical life. Imagine for a minute the spiritual implications of the choice that she made. Okay, like Elijah's with them for a while. His name means the Lord is my God. Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is the name of the God in the Bible. That's what his name means. It's not a secret who he follows. Can you imagine as they're eating a meal? Surely, surely, multiple times it had to come up who God was. What God had done. She has access to learn about the true God. 
And because of her choice, the spiritual influence for her, for her household, for her son, and for the many people that Elijah ministers to in the chapters and in the years that follows is he reaches out to the nation of Israel to try to bring them back to God. The influence that she has from this one simple, difficult, perplexing choice. And she begins to see and learn some things about this God. She sees he's perplexing, but you know what? He's also present. He's here. Baal isn't here. He's not doing anything for me. Ahab, Jezebel, the leaders of my country, they're not here. They're not able to provide. But God does. God provides for her, and she begins to see and experience a little bit more about who God is. The story, however, doesn't end there, and to be honest, if it wasn't perplexing uh, enough, it's going to get a little more perplexing for her. She gets to experience God through her son's death and resurrection. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He dies. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son, the grief she must have been feeling. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms, which indicates he had to be small enough that she is holding him in her arms such that Elijah can get him from her arms. So he can't be that big. Elijah takes him and carries him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his bed. And by now, don't you think Elijah spent time not just with her eating and with her household? Sure, this son to Elijah is this widow's son, but it's probably now a little boy that he knows. What he would have been experiencing as this son he's gotten to know, this child he's gotten to know has died. So in verse 20, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even among the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah says, see, your son lives. And she says, and the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now we don't know the entire conversation, but only this one line is recorded. And it doesn't say, thanks so much for saving my son, that's great. It doesn't say, Oh, now I understand everything about God and his ways. Now I like everything about how God does stuff. It all makes sense to me. She doesn't say that. What does she say? Now I know that you are a man of God. You are of this true God. And the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. God is true. He's reliable. He's constant. He's present. That's who he is. And so is his word. This message that she is learning is actually God's message to the entire nation of Israel in verse eight, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, rather. If you have a chance, read it this week. It's really great. Um, we see Elijah goes, and he kind of has a standoff with the prophets of Baal. 
Israel and the surrounding area, as we've said, is not really following closely to the true God as they should have been. And so God um, and Elijah, representing God, kind of go up against the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal are not able to provide, to perform a miracle. They've not been able to end the famine and the drought. Remember, they're supposed to be the life giver, fertility, storm God. They're not able to perform and do that. God, however, does perform a miracle, and he does end the drought because he is true and reliable and present and constant, and the prophets of Baal are not. The same thing that this woman is learning Now, we live in a time, at least in our country, where we hear about a lot of different religious choices, um, which one's true, which one's false, or which one's true for you, and which one's true for you. It's certainly a conversation that we hear and we have with each other. As I thought about how to talk about this, I talked to a few friends of mine and asked them, well, what should we talk about? How should I address this? They're all wonderful and said, well, if you figure it out, let me know. Um, (laughs) Thanks, guys. So, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do, and then I'll tell you what I am going to do. We could look at it from a logical perspective and say, there's one true God, or there are many ways to God, there are multiple gods, and you find your own path. Both of those are exclusive of each other, so they're both exclusive statements. Either one is true or the other is true. We could talk about that. We could also look at it from a cultural perspective and have a healthy, kind conversation about how different cultures, even in our world today, some believe there are many ways, and some cultures, even those that don't follow Christ, um, would say there's only one way. So we can approach it from that perspective. I want to, however, approach it from the perspective that I think was important and significant for the widow of Zarephath, and that's this. The Hebrew word, which the Old Testament was written in Hebrew largely, this Old Testament word for truth is not just true and false, though that may be a part of it. It really is this idea of being reliable, of being constant, of being permanent, of being trustworthy. That's the essence of that word. And so I want to think about why that being true is important. To use an illustration, I've already said I fly to South Carolina to visit my family. And as you get on planes, sometimes, or as you're waiting to get on the plane, I'm sure you've all experienced, sometimes there are maintenance delays, right? And what ends the delay is either they cancel the flight because they can't fix it, or they tell you, the plane is fixed, it's true, get on the plane. Well, am I interested in them telling me that the plane is fixed because I'm interested in some information, like whether it's true or false? Well, not really. What am I interested in? I'm interested in knowing if the plane is fixed because I'm getting ready to put my life on the plane. Is the plane fixed? Is that true? Because I want to know, is it reliable? Is it going to get me where I'm going? And that's a fair question to even ask of our spiritual journey. Is it reliable? Is it constant? Is it permanent? Is it going to change or am I going to have to change as I figure different things out and my heart goes this way one day and this way another, but what's constant and what can I trust and how can I make sure it ends well? I mean, it's tricky, right? And what she realizes living in a tricky scenario herself is, I've seen a lot of things and a lot of things come and go, but this one, this one here, this one's bankable, this one's true, this one's reliable. I can count on this one. She'd lived a helpless, desperate existence and has found something that isn't going anywhere. 
So what is it that made the difference for her? I mean, she'd been with Elijah for a while. She'd heard stories. I mean, God had prevented her and her son from dying. The food had been met every day. It's still there. But something happens. What happens that makes the difference for her? She experiences a resurrection. And that resurrection makes all the difference. God is not only present and he's not only provider, but he is powerful enough to take death and beat it, to conquer death and to bring life into someone. And that resurrection is what made all the difference for her. And to be honest, the same is true for us. Much like the widow of Zarephath, we have an opportunity to encounter a resurrection and it makes all the difference. Look with me back on your verse sheet. I want to talk a little bit about the resurrection. I'm talking about Jesus' resurrection. He was born. We celebrate that at Christmas. He lived on earth for a number of years, the perfect life. And then for anyone who would believe in him who are sinners, which is all of us, um, he was willing to say, I'll take your sin. I'll take, your, your, I'll take that on me. I will die and pay the penalty for that. But not just that, he was raised from the dead to bring life back to those who believe in him. Look at how significant the resurrection is. In Luke 24, we see it said, he, Jesus, is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Listen to what Jesus says of himself about the resurrection. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Especially important, I think, is this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we, they're having a discussion about people who have died, who believed in Christ, and when they will be resurrected from the dead, how that will happen. And so there's kind of this comparison and connection between people being raised from the dead one day, those who believed in God, and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And there are some incredibly bold statements in here. Listen to what's said about the resurrection. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Listen to this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Meaning if Jesus was born and lived a perfect life and died on the cross but was not raised again, I should be quiet and we should all go home because it doesn't matter. Keep going. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection is everything. And the great news is the resurrection did happen. And the sins of those who believe in Jesus were not just buried, but there is the possibility and the opportunity for life to be given back where there was once death. And that makes all the difference. So how did she respond to that? 
How did she respond to that resurrection? How do we respond to the resurrection that is before us? Well, we saw what she did. She said, I know this is true. I believe what I just saw and in the person who accomplished it. Romans 10 tells us on your verse sheet, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you are hearing about this resurrection for the first time, it is the most true, fantastic, life-changing thing you will ever hear about. And you can have the life Jesus gives just by believing that he died for your sins and that the resurrection actually happened. You too can stare at something you've never before experienced and say, now that I know is true. And for you, if you're here and you've believed that before, you can stand back and look at that and smile and praise and realize the significance of the resurrection that you've heard about before, but is still the thing that for all of us makes all the difference. So what else did the widow of Zarephath do? She realized that the God behind the resurrection, the God able to do that, was reliable and constant and permanent. It wasn't going anywhere. She knew she could depend on him. She knew he would be perplexing, that she wouldn't always understand it, that she wouldn't always like necessarily on the surface what happened. But she knew his character, she knew his ability, and she said, that's true. I can rely on that. The last thing, I totally wish there was a verse 25 that told us what life was like for her the next day. Like, I really don't like that it ends right there. Don't you want to, like, get to heaven? I don't know how it's going to work in heaven if we can meet her or ask, like, what was it like a year from now? Because her life wouldn't have been perfect. There's no way it would have been. It's not like she never had any other pain or grief in her life. That didn't happen. But I wonder how she lived differently. How she lived differently knowing she'd been desperate and hopeless with nothing to depend on, helpless. And now she had a permanent hope. How can we live differently because of the resurrection? As I was reflecting on this, I remember um, I had had a surgery, was diagnosed with cancer. It was right before Christmas. I totally responded terrible to anesthesia. I had to travel for Christmas. My family, of course, was upset, and you're dealing with all this stuff. And I was getting ready to go in for my second surgery a few days later. So I pulled out my Bible, and um, kind of what I have to do or like to do before big things, it's just me and Jesus in the Bible. So, And I'd set aside a long amount of time because I don't like to be interrupted, phone off, nothing planned, me, Jesus, and the Bible. And so I planned this. I sat down in the afternoon, and I thought, okay, God, like cancer, that's a big word. We, we probably need to talk about it. And not in any mystical way, not in the way God audibly said anything from heaven, but I felt like he was like, well, Kathy, I'm, I'm glad to talk about whatever it is you think you need to talk about, but what exactly do you need to know that you don't already know? And I thought, well, all right, I know I'm a sinner, but Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and the resurrection actually happened. So my hope is that um, one day I'm going to get to be with you in heaven because the resurrection happened, so I know that. I also know from reading the Bible, it's, I, I wish it was different, and heaven's going to be different, but nowhere in here does it say that as a Christian I'm not going to suffer, that it's not going to be hard. I had 
no guarantee if I was going to live or die. I lived. I had no knowledge of how painful the chemo was or wasn't going to be. It was beyond wretched. I, but heading into that, I didn't know and there wasn't a promise connected to that. And so I, there was nothing really to talk about with that. I just had to wait and see. And, and God was like, you know, and thirdly, like, I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not going anywhere. We're going to do this thing together, whether you live a short amount of time longer or long amount of time, like, I'm not going anywhere. And that took about 90 seconds. And I was like, well, I'm not sure what else it is I need to know or can know. So I had a free afternoon to do whatever it is I did after that. I don't remember. But the key points were covered. I had a resurrection. I knew he was going to be with me and be faithful and reliable. And for me, that changed everything. It is the only way we can be sure our story ends well. It's going to be hard here on earth. The Bible tells us that. To be honest, the fact that it is hard makes me trust God more because he doesn't give any indication in the scripture that it's necessarily going to be easy. Um, But he does promise to be with me. He does promise to um, keep every promise he's made in scripture. I've totally seen the parts I really like and the parts that are hard for me be true. And so I have every confidence that what he's said about the life to come is totally colored by the resurrection and available to anyone who wants to believe. We can all have a story that may not be perfect while on earth, but can end better than we can imagine, all because of the resurrection. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you so much for coming and living the life you did for dying and being raised from the dead. Father, thank you so much for how difficult it must have been to send your son, but you did it anyway. And you raised him from the dead. We are so in awe and grateful of that. Like the widow of Zarephath, we have an opportunity to respond to it. You gave her a unique opportunity and you're giving us an opportunity tonight. How do we respond to the resurrection? Father, I pray for those of us in the room to whom this knew, that you would help them realize and believe it. For those of us that need to be reminded that you're faithful and constant and we can trust you because they're in a hard season and it's perplexing and they just don't get it, I pray that they would trust you and your word and your ways and your characters, character and hang in. And I pray you would particularly hold them close. And God, I pray for all of us that we would live tomorrow today, for that matter, differently, because the resurrection actually happened. Thank you for the widow of Zarephath. Thank you for giving her the opportunity you gave her and for her faithful response. And thank you again for the resurrection. I pray that our response would be faithful and full and rich and joyful, because we get to walk a life of permanent hope because of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.